Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. State estate taxes can be a nasty surprise, especially with the disconnect between state and federal exclusions. Currently, the federal exemption stands at $12.92 million per person. However, in New York, the state estate tax exclusion stands at $6.58 million per person, and that exclusion isn't portable with a spouse. With state estate tax rates reaching 16%, this could lead to a potentially big number. However, planning around this tax can be complicated. Estate planning attorney George Bischoff is here to define the problem and the clients it affects, provide some context for planning, and give us some ideas on how to deal with it. George is an estate planning attorney here in New York City at the Wills and Trust Firm. He focuses on clients between $4 million and $20 million in net worth. Welcome aboard, George. Thank you, Fraser. Good to be here. Well, we're going to talk about something that I think covers more people than they usually think it covers, and that is the estate tax. More often than not, people hear about $12 million exemptions and $24 million or up to $28 million of exemption at the federal level. But we're both in New York, and we have the little thing known as the New York State estate tax cliff that pulls in more people. How do you get people to sort of think about that when thinking about their own taxable estate? A couple of different ways to do that, and it's a little bit of reading the client. But you want to make clear that they understand that there is multiple taxing jurisdictions. In most of my conversations, it's really New York State and the federal government. And we talk about how much they have and whether that's above or below the exemption amount. And that's the beginning of the conversation. Then we can go a little bit into things that they didn't think were includable. Often insurance proceeds are a part of your taxable state. And things that they might have worried about that aren't an issue. So your Nantucket house, your Florida apartment, your Vermont condo are not part of your New York state tax board. So there's a little bit of walking people through the basic elements of the New York tax. That's how we get started. So right now, the federal limits are $12.92 million, but the New York state limit is around $6.58 million for people who are not in New York. Places like Vermont and Illinois and California and other states have estate taxes, too, with their own different limits and vagaries associated with them. But at $6.58 million, especially for New York City residents, you can bump up against that pretty quickly. There's no question about it. And you can get caught on the back foot with the rapidly rising value of real estate, not in a matter of days, but certainly in a few years, you can see that outpace your expectations. As I mentioned, life insurance can be a place where if you weren't aware that 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 was part of your taxable state can get you up to that six and a half million number. And then as the market goes up and down, if you hold financial assets, it doesn't take much of a time in a rising market to push you closer to that six point five, eight million dollars if you were already in the four to five zone. So one of the things it's important to link up for people is the idea that at the federal level, the estate tax rate is 40%. And while many people don't get to that because the exemption keeps them pretty far away from that area, in New York, once you get over that 6.58 million level, you get tagged with a 16% rate once you get past some graduation levels. What does that sort of do to the analysis that would you bring that to clients? Most of my clients are less concerned about fine-tuning the amount between 6.58 million and 8 million or so, but they want to know what's going on. 
we walk through the graduation issues, the rate, depending on how you look at it and how you count, is from 5 to 16%. And it is deductible for the federal. That's worth noting. So the effective rate, if you get way up in the federal zone, goes from 16 back down to 9.9%. So it's interesting how those things, and it's different conversation for different people because, of course, the balance sheet may also involve the analysis you have to do with a married couple. And often there, even if you know how the wealth is divided between the two, you don't typically know the order of deaths or the time between the deaths. So talking about graduated New York rates and an order of deaths is all part of one larger conversation. So one of the things, too, that makes New York, New York, is that there are things that don't necessarily seem logical. And I talked about the notion of a cliff, which is where once you creep over that 6.58 level, things get taxed back to dollar zero. And so you can end up with the, I would call it the distortive situation where if you had, let's say, a $6 million estate, you would pay zero New York state tax. Whereas if you had $7 million of net worth, then you kick into that estate tax regime and it goes all the way back to the first dollar. And that relates to the graduated components that we were talking about. How much of a surprise is that for some people when they discover that? It's a fairly narrow set of people. It's typically folks in that sort of 6.5 to $7.5 million range, but it can be very surprising. It produces some interesting numbers on the page. You, you have a period, it's, it's technically a phase out, right? So you have a period where the rate on the next dollar has a particular rate. And then as you get above 105%, you're changing not only the rate, but also the base, as you said, between 100 and 105%, you're taxing that excess. And then as you get above 105%, you're taxing everything up to that point. So a number of different moving parts. And just to use very round numbers, if you've got an extra 200,000 above 6,580,000, so you're in the 6,780,000, you're talking about several hundred thousand dollars of tax liability, well in excess of the amount of additional the state tax base, so it's a marginal rate well above 100%. It's an interesting phenomenon. It creates the scenario where you might have been better off lighting that extra money on fire, <laughs> which is never a good policy, in my opinion. Exactly right. Looking around for either estate administration expenses or charitable gifts or other things. But the tough part, not to get ahead of ourselves, is that you typically can't plan for that stuff in advance. And one of the sort of kooky things about the New York state tax, and this happens in other states as well, is that a concept that is part of the federal state exemption and exclusion regime is the idea that each married spouse's, their exemptions are portable, meaning that you can use those for broader planning. Whereas in New York state, as it relates to its estate tax situation, those exemptions are not portable. Tell me what you think about as far as you alluded to the fact that you can't tell what the order of demise is or sort of the proximity of the two deaths. That can have a real world implication here. Oh, there's no question about it. There are some really unfortunate and avoidable outcomes for folks who don't do the right planning around making sure that you get the benefit of both exemptions. It's a critical piece of planning. Just side note, you may be aware or for listeners that both of the big federal same-sex marriage cases of Burgerfell and Windsor were about the spousal exemption. And so it's an important part of clear planning. It's the downside to doing what in the trade we call an I love you will, where the first spouse who passes doesn't do the planning. And then that money, although it avoids taxation when the first spouse passes, the government gets a second bite of the apple and can tax that money uh, when the second spouse passes. So yeah, it can really be unfortunate and 
you can't avoid all of it, but you can do planning to avoid as much as you can. It's a shame to leave money on the table when you've got beneficiaries who could put that money to work for themselves. So we've defined a bit of our let's call it our market here. We've got people, let's say, above five million in net worth and certainly creeping towards six million and then going above and beyond on that front. Those are the people in New York who should be thinking about what's happening with their general estate planning as it relates to the state exemption. We've alluded to the fact that it relates to New York-only property. We've alluded to the fact that the New York state exemption is not portable, so you have to do some tap dancing in order to incorporate both spouses' exemptions in planning if you're able to do so. But let's take a step back for a second and say, okay, client walks in the door and says, we think we have a situation. We're doing our general planning. You look at it and you see the asset levels and you say, you might have a real New York state estate tax issue. What are some of the ways to think about reducing or minimizing that tax bite at the New York state level? Great question. It's a little bit of an exercise in reading your clients. Let's walk through a couple of them. And, and some of these may sound ridiculous to some people and other people think it's the greatest thing since the invention of sliced bread. The one I begin with right off the bat is, are you planning to leave New York anytime soon? Are you open to that? It occasionally happens that someone says, well, we're on our way to Florida, North Carolina, wherever it may be. Then I say, well, if you do that sooner than later, you, the problem goes away sooner. Sometimes that involves simply picking up sticks and moving for people who are New York renters. If it involves the sale of New York property, then it's a little longer timeline. But the first thing I always float is to say, hey, listen, is it part of your plans or could it be part of your plans to leave the jurisdiction? That can be hard not to turn this into a different conversation, but there are issues of residence and domicile that come up. It's not simply a matter of changing your voter registration or driver's license. But if you're planning to move your life and where you do your things out of New York, then certainly discuss that with your state tax planner because that will solve this problem. Right. This is a New York problem. And just to put a fine point on it, people who are leaving New York, we were talking ahead of time and this could be its own podcast, but you really do have to stick the landing in your new jurisdiction and definitely establish that you're in a new place and that you are out of New York. Well, right. And there's two pieces there. And this couple big ideas are helpful for listeners, right? You are working both to establish that you're in a new place. Let's imagine it's North Carolina. And you've got some residents there, your cars are registered there, your dog is there. But then you've also cut ties to New York, right? So you've given up your Yankee season tickets and your board memberships, and you're not regularly coming back to other kinds of ties. So it's both getting yourself planted somewhere else and cutting your ties to New York State. And there's a lot of funny case-by-case -case anecdotal things that have come up over the years. But the tax agencies will fight on this. They will look to make their arguments, and you're going to want to marshal your evidence and be able to show them, yeah, I'm not a New Yorker anymore. So let's get into the notion of using charity to reduce your net worth and maybe get you from $7 million of net worth down to $5 million. That would seem to be a logical tactic. How do you think about that for people? This is so driven by the client's wishes, and, and part of the work of any good planner is to sort of understand what the client wants, right? There are certainly people who come in and they say, hey, look, the world has been good to me and I would like to leave my estate to save the whales or the New York Philharmonic. I use these kind of general examples, Amherst College. And where they come in with a charitable intent and it's expansive and covers the whole estate, this conversation goes away, right? What's interesting to talk about and creates options is for folks who say, well, I've got, in your hypothetical, $7 million, and I'm interested in making gifts of about $2 million of that. My kids or my other 
people I'm finding around, four and a half, five million is great for them, but let's put this other two million to work. Or alternatively, I'm open to making charitable gifts, but how does that fit into the overall plan? And if we explain that making a charitable gift of a portion of the estate can have not only a benefit to the charity, but also substantial tax savings for the taxable beneficiaries, then that's a win. And so when we talk about that, we want to walk through this estate tax cliff and say, an extra bang for the buck with a charitable gift using some of these strategies. So one of the things that sometimes happens is people are interested in the charitable component, but they want to do it upon their passing in their will or in irrevocable trusts, things like that. And there's something that sometimes is called the Santa Claus, which is a tactic around this topic as well. How do you think about that in terms of doing the charitable tactics at the death area as opposed to around someone doing it during their lifetime? Well, I think the Santa Claus, the idea of a conditional gift or a formula gift, and I quick shout out to Paul Forrester and Lawrence Kieser came up with that phrase in an article a couple of years ago. But the Santa Claus is very powerful, right? Because it allows the planner to say, in addition to these gifts that I definitely want to make, then if there's this added advantage based on the amount of taxable estate, the amount of potential tax and other things, then I want to make this conditional gift. Well, then you've got the best of both worlds, right? You've made some planned gifts, either during a lifetime or that are fixed in the will or the trust. And then you can have this conditional gift. So it really allows you to say, I know I want to do this, and I'll do this under these circumstances. And a well-drafted Santa Claus can come up with an amount using formulas that solves the problem as neatly as you'd like. You can have a Santa Claus that gives exactly so much that it optimizes taxes, or you can sort of be a little rough justice and say, well, if I'm in this taxable zone, then I give dollar X, and that's a little more charitable giving for the charity, but knock yourself out, that's great. Or you can do less than the formula amount. You say, well, then I'll give this additional amount to charity, but that's as much as I want to give. And if there's a little bit of tax left on the table, I'm okay with that too. People are funny about taxes. I have some people who they're absolutely insistent on avoiding every possible dollar tax. And I'm telling the clients that, listen, I want it simple and easy for my beneficiaries. Nobody's going to starve. Let's keep it simple and clear. And if there's a check that gets cut to the tax man, that's okay. So one thing that's interesting is people discover that New York doesn't have a gift tax. So people who start diving into state tax planning for their own affairs start to understand the relationship between a gift tax and the estate tax. And at the state level, New York does not have gift tax. And so frequently I get the question, well, why don't I just give away some assets toward the end of my life and then we can sort of cut everything off and we're good to go. But there's a real danger with that. Maybe describe that a little bit for us. Sure. The big thing to look out for there is it's called different things. I forget the technical name. It's essentially the gift tax clawback. As you calculate the taxable estate in New York, you will include gifts made in three years preceding death, which can be inadvertent little bit that comes back in, or as it's intended to do, it can bring back into the estate substantial gifts that were meant to avoid the estate tax. And it's often the case that you don't know when you're going to pass. So if you have, go back to our other example, $7 million and you're thinking of giving $2 million away while you're alive, the sooner you do that, the sooner you get the clock running on the three-year look-back period, clawback, as it's sometimes called too. It just goes back to saying, if you think you can get away with it by doing things on your deathbed, that is not what New York contemplates. Exactly right. Put that in the very, very large bucket of the more planning you do sooner, the more effective you plan planning. 
For those people, let's change the fact pattern slightly and say that they've got some non-New York real estate that's not going to be part of the New York state estate tax calculation, but they have liquid assets or let's say semi-liquid family business interests. And just for simplicity here, we'll say that they aren't New York sourced income types of scenarios. A lot of people start thinking about Delaware and other trust jurisdictions where the client can maintain a little bit of access to them, if maybe even if just in emergencies, but otherwise shift things out of their estate. Where do you see that pop up in your practice, if at all? I like to take this from the top down with all different kinds of clients. It's more interesting for the larger balance sheets. But when we talk about getting assets outside of an estate, I often point to the trade-off between tax benefit and control. And whether we're talking about a trust managed in a jurisdiction like Delaware, New Hampshire, Alaska, or getting real estate in a non-New York state that's in a trust or some other structure, the more control you need or want to retain, the more likely it's going to be that that gets brought into the taxable estate. But there are clearly good structures, and it's just a brute fact about the economy, capitalism, and wealth. The more wealth you have, the more palatable it is to lose a bit of control over any particular part of that wealth. The larger your balance sheet, the easier it is to say, well, as to this particular asset, I'm going to surrender a substantial amount of control over it and get it out of my taxable state. So there's a lot of conversation there. Thankfully, there are a lot of smart people in a number of different jurisdictions that do things differently. So there are real opportunities for people who want to do the work of analysis. One more tactic, we alluded to this a few minutes ago, was the idea that portability does not exist in New York. So the danger there for listeners is that if someone passes away without having done any sort of New York planning and moved it to their spouse, let's say, that $6.58 million exemption would not necessarily transport to the spouse and you end up losing the benefit of that. How do you solve for that and how do you use it if that comes up? What would you do to maintain both of those exemptions in a planning scenario? The big move is to make sure that in both wills or trusts, you have a credit shelter trust set up so that when the first spouse passes, that money goes into the trust. It's exposed to tax because it isn't going to the surviving spouse directly, but it's exposed to tax at a 0% rate and thereafter is protected from tax. And this is a great way to make sure that you have the benefit of both exemptions for both partners. And it can come up in a lot of wide situations, right? Even if you're not a New York person, whether you're in Massachusetts, Texas, Idaho, your surviving spouse might move to New York, right? And then you'll have the benefit of hindsight of having done that, set up the credit shelter trust that you have effectively portability. In other words, you're using the benefit of the exemption for both spouses. That's one of those things I've seen in a lot of different scenarios in rev trusts and wills and so on that the language doesn't speak to New York directly, but it allows the executor slash trustee the flexibility to take advantage of whatever is in place at the time of death so that you're not boxed in necessarily to the different jurisdiction at the time of the writing of the instrument. That's correct. You can sell pretty close to the wind here. A well-drafted plan will give substantial flexibility to the surviving spouse, but also ensure that even in a couple different scenarios, that exempt amount as applied to the first spouse is preserved. So as we wind down here, for people who are hearing this and saying, geez, I'm not sure I'm exactly in it. I have this amount of net worth. I have this amount of real estate. What are some real telltale signs that you should get your estate plan reviewed or at the very least take a look at it and see if you have any of these issues? A couple obvious ones. If you don't have a will, you should absolutely speak to someone about doing a will or trust. 
If it's been a while, that's another trigger. And how long a while is upon whether you've had changes in children, grandchildren, your marital status, you've changed your state of residence. But if you haven't reviewed your will in a while, that's another big one. And if you're in New York and you're getting anywhere near that $6.5 million number, which I mean north of $4 million, then certainly you want to walk through these issues. So those are some basic triggers. But it's a little bit like getting eight hours of sleep and eating healthfully and getting exercise. You should review your estate plan fairly regularly and more often as your balance sheet or your family changes. Terrific. George, appreciate the commentary. This is really helpful for New York clients. What is the best way for people to find you? Website, Twitter handle, LinkedIn, what have you got? I love a phone call. It allows me to kind of say who I am and what I do. I think the easiest way for people to reach out would be to go to my website where all that kind of info is. So my firm is called The Wills and Trusts Firm, and my website is at thewillsfirm.com. Thewillsfirm.com. I'm George Bishop, and someone will pick up the phone when you call. Excellent. George, appreciate the time. That information will be in the show notes, and we'll have you back on for other tips and pointers. That was great. Thank you for your questions. It's fun to help people by highlighting this important area of planning. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.